As we continue through our study of the book of Exodus, we turn now to Exodus 18. Uh, we've been traveling for a while through this book, and uh, we come now to a kind of what sh- functions as a hinge within the book of Exodus. And to understand it, we need to kind of see the book as a whole to understand how it's structured, to see the importance, which we'll come to later, of how this chapter in particular functions. If not, it may just seem like it's kind of stuck in here. Here's the way that the book of Exodus is structured. Really, chapters 1 through 18 deal with the great exodus of God's people out of Egypt and then into through the Red Sea. That's where we've been so far. Well, starting in chapter 19, the people of Israel then arrive at Mount Sinai, and God then gives them his law. And the rest from chapter 19 on at Sinai is in the giving of God's law and the instructions for what it means to live a life following him, and the instructions and particularly for building the tabernacle. We've seen the last five chapters. So the rest of the book of Exodus happens at the base of Mount Sinai. So there's really two books in the book of Exodus. There's book one, God saves, chapters 1 through 18. And there's book two, God speaks in chapters 19 through 40. And so this chapter in particular comes right in the middle and will help us see later on what is going on here in this chapter that may feel like it's just kind of random and thrown in here. So as we start, we'll look here in chapter 18. Uh, The Israelites have traveled through the Red Sea. They grumble, they grumble, they grumble. God gives them water. God gives them food. God gives them more water. They're attacked by the Amalekites. We saw last week in chapter 17, verse 8 through 16. But God still shows up, and he is their banner. And then he ends up, through his power, defeating the Amalekites. And that brings us now to chapter 18, where Moses has an interaction with his father-in-law. Thus the name of the sermon today, thank God for in-laws. We'll see, two different, really two different points here, and then a question at the end. This, this chapter is really divided up into two different sections. Uh, verses 1 through 12 deal with Jethro's conversion. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. We see Jethro's conversion. He's a, a Midianite, he's not an Israelite. He comes in and believes and worships the living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we'll see that in verses 1 through 12. Second, then, we see Jethro's counsel, verse 13 to 27. We'll get into that. He gives Moses incredible counsel on being a good leader. We'll look and see what that is. But finally, we'll ask the question, why is this story here? Why is this story here? And we'll get to why that may feel odd in just a moment. Why is this story here? So that's kind of our three points we'll be walking through today. And it almost feels like three different sermons, honestly, because it's just kind of, um, it's a, you'll see the structure of the chapter itself. So first, Jethro's conversion, verses 1 through 12. Look at verse 1. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who's the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people Israel when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, who's Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, because Moses had said, I've been a resident alien in a foreign land. And the other, Eleazar, because Moses had said, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God, this Mount Sinai. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and then kissed him. They asked each other how they had been and went into the tent. Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardships that confronted them on the way and how the Lord had rescued them. I want to pause right there. 
Because what we've seen so far in Jethro's conversion is that Jethro heard about all that God had done, right, in a, number, in a couple of different ways. Jethro heard about all that God had done. This was the first step of his conversion, right? You see at the very beginning in verse 1 that Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done. How did he hear about it? Well, at some point, Moses had sent his wife, Zipporah, who Jethro was her father, sent Zipporah and their two sons back to Jethro, or sent Zipporah and their two sons back to Jethro. And so I think probably from Zipporah at some point, she began to tell her dad all that God was doing for the people of Israel, the plagues, the Red Sea, manna. And so Jethro's intrigued. So he then gets his daughter and his grandkids and goes then to meet Moses. And they get together, they um, ask each other how they're doing, they exchange pleasantries, and then verse 8, Moses again recounts and proclaims to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. So looking at Jethro's conversion, which we'll see to later, look at the very first step. Jethro heard. He was not an Israelite. He's from the nations. He was a Midianite. You continue to read the Old Testament, the Midianites and the Israelites don't have a good relationship. But it starts off good here at the beginning. He hears about what God has done, seems like through his daughter. He comes to Moses, and then he hears again from Moses. Again, I've said this before. It's, just, it's worth repeating again. There's a common phrase that gets shared on Facebook. People love to say it. Preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. And I understand the heart. The heart is saying that we need to live a life that reflects the gospel. If we're hypocritical to that, people aren't going to listen to that. That's absolutely true. But here's the problem, is that you don't preach the gospel through your actions. We preach the gospel through what we say. It's words. People have to hear. You can't hear, then people don't believe. The gospel is, the, the literal Greek translation is good news. It's news. I don't know what news stations you watch, but I haven't at, watched one yet that acts out the news and lives out the news. They tell you the news. Here is what has happened. Coming up tomorrow, Stay tuned, 5 o'clock. For all those who are my age and younger, the news is something that comes on every night uh, on local stations where people tell you what happened. It's like the internet, but on television. So there that is, contextualization. And here we need to see the gospel is not something we preach always and when necessary use words. We have to use words in order to preach the gospel. It is news. We have to tell what has been done. Jethro heard about what God had done. Hearing is the first step in his conversion. But then secondly, not only did he hear, then in verses 9 through 11, he rejoiced over what God has done. Look at verse 9. After Jethro had heard, verse 9, Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh, he has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. This is what begins to get me to believe that Jethro is here converted. He begins to worship and uh, follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. He rejoices over all that God has done. Here's this foreigner from the nations that comes in, this priest from Midian, and he now rejoices hearing all the good things that God has done. And I love that word rejoice. Because notice Jethro does not just intellectually agree with all the things the Lord has done. There's something in his heart that is moved and that responds. He rejoices. 
And friends, this gets to the very heart of conversion, no pun intended. That conversion and following Jesus, making the decision to follow Jesus is not simply a matter of the mind, it's a matter of the heart. It's not simply sitting and going, oh, I believe in true things. I believe that Jesus says this and this and this and this. It's one in which the heart embraces him as well, in which our hearts rejoice. Salvation is not simply the intellectual agreement to an observable fact, but the affectionate embrace of a divine savior. James in the New Testament picks up on this in his letter. There's a whole bunch of Christians that go, yeah, 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 no, I believe in Jesus. He's God, he's God, but their life hasn't changed at all. And James is like, well, guys, if you really believe in him and your hearts have embraced him, your lives would be different. And here's what he tells them in rebuking them. He says, guys, listen, even the demons believe that there is one God and they shudder. He's trying to help the people see being a Christian and following Jesus is not merely saying, I believe Jesus exists. I believe some of the things that he says about himself. Does our heart rejoice at who he is and what he has done for us that then leads us to give him our life in response? It is not simply an intellectual exercise in which we go, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe, and then we walk out unchanged. Demons are excellent theologians. They know a lot of true things about God, but they have not embraced him and loved him and accepted Jesus as their savior. For as we see here for Jethro, he not only heard about what God had done, but he rejoiced in the good things that God has done. And third, we see that Jethro responded to what God had done. In verse 12, look at verse 12. Here's Jethro's response. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. The response to this salvific act of God in Jethro's life, Jethro responds, and he responds with offering, with sacrifices, coming together to celebrate with a meal and the presence of God. And you see here Jethro's response as a representative of Midian, different from how the nations have so far responded to God in the book of Exodus, right? The Egyptians responded to God, how does he say here in verse 11? Arrogantly. They said, we are our own God. Who, who is this God that we should believe in him? We have Pharaoh. We have our own God. There's arrogance from Egypt's response. The Amalekites' response last week in chapter 17, hear this attack from the nations. Their response is aggression. We're stronger than your God. Our way is better than your way. They begin to come and try to pick off the weaker Israelites. Egypt responds with arrogance. Amalekites respond with aggression. But here Midian and Jethro respond with affection. They embrace the one true God, offers sacrifice, and eats a meal in the presence of God. And friends, it's important to see how this plays out here because in order to believe and to embrace and call on God and worship him, Jethro had to hear. And in order to hear, someone had to tell him. There's a logical connection. There's a way in which we can get caught up, I think, in the Christian life and just go through the motions and not see the story that God has called us into to want to see more and more people call on him, trust in him, and follow him, to believe in him. In order to do that, they have to hear. In order to hear, you have to say something. This is what Paul says in Romans 10. This is his logical connection in Romans 10. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? 
And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And a couple verses later, he sums it up this way. So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message about Christ. As we look at Jethro's conversion here, we see that he heard, he rejoiced, and he responded. And may it set in us a burden, an urgency, a privilege to see what God has called each of us to, to bring and to carry and to tell so that others can hear. This is Jethro's conversion in verses 1 through 12. It then shifts and changes the tone. Now in verses 13 through 27, as we see Jethro's counsel, Jethro becomes a, a caricature of a father-in-law almost, as we'll see. He comes in and begins to tell Moses all the things that he's doing wrong. My father-in-law is great, though. If you're watching this, Mr. Mike, you don't do this at all. You're a great father-in-law. Never, 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 never do that. Jethro, though, he begins to step in. Look at, look at Jethro's advice here. Um, we'll read in verses 13 through 23 what Jethro kind of sees, and then we'll look at the end at what he offers to Moses and how Moses responds. Verse 13, the next day, then Moses sat down to judge the people. And remember, there's about two to three million Israelites that Moses is leading and judging here. And they stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, what is this you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge? while all the people stand around you from morning until evening. Moses replied to his father-in-law, well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another, and I teach them God's statutes and law. What you're doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. And then how father-in-law is this? Listen to this. Now listen to me. Listen to me, Moses, and I will give you some advice. And God be with you. You be the one to represent the people before God and to bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you should select from among all the people able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet and place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They should judge the people at all times. And then they can bring you every major case, but judge every minor case themselves. And this way you will lighten your load and they will bear it with you. If you do this and God so directs you, you will be able to endure. And also all these people will be able to go home satisfied. I'm gonna pause there. So this is Jethro's advice. This is his counsel. He sees Moses wearing himself out from morning until night, teaching, instructing, judging, counseling. And Jethro's like, man, what are you doing? Bad idea. You're gonna wear yourself out. You instead need to delegate, find godly men, God-fearing men, they hate dishonest prophet, begin to delegate and push off to others around you who will help bear this load with you. And what we see here in Moses' response is we see counsel for what it looks like to be a good leader. And two things in particular we see is we see a good leader listens and we see a good leader delegates. Look at verse 24 and how Moses responds. Moses listened to his father-in-law. That just show you just how godly he is right there. Moses heard from his father-in-law all the things that he was doing wrong, and Moses humbly listens. 
He listens to his father-in-law and did everything he said. A good leader listens. We can build up a lot of walls and get really defensive whenever people come and critique or maybe offer things that maybe we don't see. We put up walls, whether it be with friends, coworkers. We offer all the excuses or reasons why we're doing things the way we do. Our spouses automatically get defensive. No, 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 don't question. Don't question me. We begin to get defensive. It's hard for us to listen to other people's critique of us. There's so many reasons as to why that is. But one of them is we are continually struggling with the desire to prove our worth through what we do. And so anytime someone comes and begins to poke a little bit in areas where it seems like we are failing, we've got to justify, we have to defend, because our worth cannot be damaged. It can't be affected. The way in which we're freed from that is seeing that our identity, our worth, and our value is totally fixed through being united in union with Jesus Christ and his righteousness is counted on our own so that my worth does not come from what I do or what I own or how other people view me. My worth comes through the eyes of the Father through what he has done in Jesus Christ. And it's fixed So what does it matter then when people come and say, hey, Caleb, you should maybe do this a little differently or that a little differently? They're probably right because I'm not God. And one pastor told me um, a while ago, he's an older pastor, and he said, Caleb, it's always good to hear critique because even if they miss the bullseye, they'll probably still hit the target. But there's probably something that we need to hear. Not always the case, but do we listen? Or do we automatically justify? Put up the walls and get defensive. Moses is a good leader, and a good leader listens. Every Sunday night, we get together with our pastoral training program, men in our church who desire to be uh, elders. It's a two-year program here. We meet every Sunday night, reading through books, discussing about two books a month. Um, And one of the other things we do is review the service from the morning. And we want to be able to give both pros and grows, is what we call it. It's the positive spin we put on it. Pros and grows. What are things that were good, that were God-glorifying, that, were, that were, uh, we need to highlight? And what are things that maybe we could work on? And one of the things we hope to model in those conversations is be able to both model how to give and receive godly encouragement and godly criticism. We need to give and we need to receive both of those. Some of us are really good at giving godly criticism. Very good. We say, well, it's just, my, it's just my personality type. There's nothing I can do about it. I can only see the faults. Well, okay, that may be true. That may be God's gifting for you, but also maybe look to make like an encouragement sandwich, like an encouragement, a critique, and then another encouragement there at the end. I was talking to one of my friends who had a propensity to critique for me, and they would uh, come uh, afterwards, they'd hear me preach, and they were very specific. And so I kind of gave that illustration of a compliment sandwich, like, okay, yeah, yeah, got it, got it. Caleb, you did a great job this morning. Here's four very specific things you need to grow in but you did a really good job this morning. It's like, okay, well, maybe if we're specific in our critique, perhaps we could be specific in our encouragement as well. But friends, how many of us are willing to receive godly criticism as well as give godly encouragement, looking for specific ways? Moses does here. Jethro comes up. I mean, he doesn't mince any words. Did you hear what he said? This is his father-in-law. Comes up and says, hey, what you're doing is not good. Now listen to me, and I will give you some advice. That's quoted from the scriptures. How are you going to respond if anybody, especially your in-law, comes and says that? What does Moses say? Moses listens, and he did everything he said. And for no matter what area you're in, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, in your job, 
A good leader listens, listens to others, and surrounds himself and opens the door for those kinds of comments and communication. So they know if someone comes and says something, they're not going to be met with a rebuke or a defense or a reason why it's always done. It's just received. You think about it. You determine whether or not it has value to change or to implement in your life. Maybe just let it roll off. But there's, there's uh, principles and uh, advice for all of us here. But not only do we see a good leader listens, a good leader also delegates. I see this in verses 25, 26. So Moses chose able men from among all Israel and made them leaders over people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. Moses does what his father-in-law had said, and he delegates his authority, his power, his role to others around him to help him bear the load. Again, there's so much wisdom for each of us here in the church. I mean, this is almost seems like a direct connection to the way in which God structures the church, to have a plurality of pastors or a plurality of elders leading his church to bear with one another. It's too heavy for one man. So I, we here, we have three pastors, myself, Jim Pickering, Abel Rivera. So that's why I say every Sunday, I'm one of the pastors. I am paid to do this. I'm a vocational pastor. Um, but there is no difference in our authority and in our role. Why? Because it's too heavy for one man to bear. And so there are others that God brings to raise them up. You even see qualifications here, like Paul gives Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, to bear the load with one another, to be able to care for and shepherd. But again, this goes beyond the church and into all of life. And part of it was the desire for control. We like to do what we like to do, and we can do it the best. To give it to someone else may mean it's going to get done worse. Well, it might be, but you also may be running yourself into the ground. Or as Jethro says here, wearing yourself out and wearing yourself, wearing those around you out. And there's importance to delegate, to be able to give to others what others can do. Again, in your job, in your family, in your friendships, or even, maybe there's not even a particular role in which you're doing, in which someone comes alongside and takes things that you're doing off your plate. Maybe it's just sharing what you're walking through so your friend can come alongside and bear with you what you're walking through because it's too heavy to walk alone. It's like the image from last week as Moses had to raise his hands on the top of the hill. And every time his hands were raised, Israel was defeating the Amalekites. Every time his hands fell down, the Amalekites were beating the Israelites. So his brother-in-law... And his brother Aaron and her come and they hold his arms up when he couldn't hold them up for himself. Friend, there are people that God has given you to help you bear the load that you're walking through because it's too heavy for yourself. And you will wear yourself out. You can't do it alone. But friend, God has not put you in a situation where you have to do it alone. He's given you a whole body of local believers and he's given you his spirit to walk alongside you. A good leader listens, and a good leader delegates. This is what we see in verse 27. Then Moses let his father-in-law go, and he journeyed to his own land. So we see Jethro's conversion in 1 through 12 shifts then in Jethro's counsel in verses 13 to 27. Again, it just kind of feels like these are just two random things kind of put together here in the middle of Exodus. We've seen all sorts of amazing things up until this point. We've seen Red Seas get parted. We've seen 10 plagues. We've seen the Passover. We've seen manna falling from heaven, quail just showing up out of nowhere, water springing from a rock, God defeating people with Moses lifting his arm in the air. And what do we get in 18? We get some advice from a father-in-law. 
an extended portion. Jethro gets a whole chapter. And I just began to scratch my head going, why is this story here? That's a question I want to kind of end with today because I think it helps us see the larger purpose of this chapter and how it serves not just a purpose in the book of Exodus, but also the entire Bible. I think if not, if we don't ask that question, we'll breeze right over what I think is the climax of the book of Exodus. So why is this story here? Well, the first thing, again, we want to be careful to see. The first thing we see, why is the story here, is because this story in chapter 18 actually has a lot of parallels from the previous chapter in verses 8 through 16 with the battle from the Amalekites. Battle we've been referencing where Moses had his arms lifted in the air, Amalekites and the Israelites were fighting. There are a number of parallels throughout this chapter and that section. A number of the commentators have pointed this out. And we looked at some of the parallels. I'll have them up on the screen. The parallels to chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. In chapter 17, verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked. But in chapter 18, 5 and 7, Jethro came and greeted. In, chapter, in both 17, 9 and 18, 25, we see that men are chosen for a specific task. Joshua chooses them in chapter 17. Moses chooses them to judge in chapter 18. In chapter 17, verse 12, Moses sits on a rock. In chapter 18, verse 13, Moses sits to be able to judge. In both of these narratives, that judging commences the next day, and it lasts all day until evening. And in chapter 17, verse 12, Moses is said to be tired, and help is given and provided. In chapter 18, verse 18, Moses again is said to be tired, and help is provided. There's this parallel between chapter 17 and 18. What is God doing here as his spirit inspires Moses to write this account and place this chapter here? And what are the parallels for? Some people believe even that this visit from Jethro happens after God gives the law and that Moses actually pulls it and puts it out of chronological order on purpose. Whether or not that's the case, I'm not entirely sure. It doesn't really matter because it's here and we have to ask why. What are the parallels here that we see in 17 and 18? I think the parallel is that we see that this is God now having delivered his people Israel from Egypt through the Red Sea. And now in 17 and 18, we see the nations respond to God's salvation. In chapter 17, the nations rage and they fight against what God has done. Like Cheryl read in Psalm 2 earlier, the nations have always raged against God and his grace. But then in 18, we see the nations Here, represented by Jethro, who's a priest from Midian, we see the nations come and respond in worship, believing and following Yahweh. And we see these two different, we see these two different responses to God's grace from the nations. And I think that that's important because as we've seen, this book of Exodus so far is building in the theme of God making his name known. I talked about last week how it parallels to the musical Alexander Hamilton asking the question, what's your name? God answers consistently throughout the book of Exodus, my name is Yahweh, revealed first to Moses at the burning bush at Exodus 3, and then to Pharaoh and the Egyptians through the ten plagues, and ultimately through all the earth. He's revealing his name around the nations. Right? Remember, we've said this purpose statement over and over through the study in Exodus 9.16. Why didn't God just wipe out the Egyptians and send, free his people? Why 10 plagues? Did God need to get warmed up? Was this his practice getting ready for the big one? No, 9.16 tells us, I have let you live for this purpose 
to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. God is revealing himself in his name, not just to Moses, not just to Pharaoh, not just to the Egyptians, not just to the Israelites, but to the whole earth. ESV puts it this way, translated this way, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That God's name would be known around the entire earth. That's what he is doing here in the book of Exodus as this is developing. And the culmination of that purpose is seen in Jethro, the nations, hearing what God has done and coming to follow him and worship him. These two chapters round out this great theme at the base of Mount Sinai here in chapter 18, that God's name is now known on the whole earth. But we see the two different reactions of the Amalekites in 17 and Jethro in 18. In chapter 17, the nations attack. In chapter 18, the nations repent. In chapter 17, the nations rage. In chapter 18, the nations worship. In chapter 17, the nations are the enemy of God, but in chapter 18, the nations are the inheritance of God. It is the culmination of what God has been doing and making his name known through the whole earth. And we see Jethro then coming as a Gentile to God's people and believing in the God of Israel. And so Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intentionally places this chapter here, not simply to give us some good wisdom on biblical leadership or how to interact with our father-in-laws, but to act as a sort of structural hinge in the entire book. And that verses 1 through 12 in Jethro's conversion round out this theme of the nations knowing God's name. And verses 13 to 27 set the structural groundwork for the delegation of the law that's going to be given at Sinai for the remainder of the book. 18 is the point in which the book hinges. Exodus part 1, God saves. Exodus part 2, God speaks. And in between the two, you get this extended account of a priest from the nations coming to worship God. This is the climax of the book of Exodus. And if we aren't careful, we'll breeze right by it. I think in particular, even the climax is seen in a single verse in verse 12. Jethro brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. The nations are invited around a table to eat in the presence of God. I think this is the climax of what's happening in the book of Exodus. We might get caught up in the grandeur of what's happened so far and miss what happens here. We've seen divine plagues of blood and gnats and hail and darkness. We've seen the death of every firstborn in Egypt. We've seen pillars of clouds and fire connecting the sky to the earth. We've seen a road through a sea with walls of water on both sides. We've seen bitter water made pure, manna fall from heaven, and water spring from a rock. But the climax of this book isn't in the miraculous, it's in a meal. A meal in which the nations are invited to in the very presence of God. And I think this is the climax because this global focus of God's name being proclaimed in all the earth is not just the stated purpose of the plagues in chapter 9, verse 16, is the stated mission of God throughout the entire Bible. The plagues have ceased. The Red Sea collapsed back in. The manna isn't falling anymore, but this meal continues. And God is on a mission to see the nations come be a part of it. This isn't just a New Testament thing. It's not like God in the Old Testament loved the Israelites, but the New Testament God began this kind of missions work. 
Friends, God from the very beginning has had a heart for the nations. We see it all the way back. The very beginning in his call to Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3. He says, I will bless you, Abraham, if you go out and then all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. He's not talking about just financial stuff because Paul picks that verse up in Galatians and says, you know how that verse was fulfilled? It was fulfilled through Jesus Christ, that Jesus came through the line of Abraham and was the great blessing to all the earth. We see it in the Psalms, Psalm 67, most specifically, as the psalmist writes that your salvation, God, would be known among all nations, your ways known upon all the earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice, just like Jethro did, and shout for joy. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. There has been a global missional thrust from the very beginning, and it continues on in the New Testament. As Jesus gathers his disciples around, after he has been resurrected and gives them one great commission, and the commission is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, to go to take this news and bring it with you, have beautiful feet and carry it to preach so that people can hear so then hearts will be opened and people would believe and call on the name of the Lord because there is coming a day in the future as we see the Bible round out in Revelation as John sees this glimpse of what heaven and eternity will look like and in Revelation 7 verse 9, he sees and there was a vast multitude too, too numerous to count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Revelation 7 is the culmination of the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. And guess what happens at the end of Revelation that that vast multitude of nations is doing? In Revelation 19.9, they find themselves gathered around a table, eating a meal in the presence of God. Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9. As Jesus, seen as the great bridegroom, comes back for his bride, described in this image of his church. As he comes to rescue his bride. This is what the church is described as, a metaphor. And then in Revelation, we see this great union then of Christ and his church. And then there's a celebration. And around that table with every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And the nations are invited to a table to eat and celebrate in the presence of God. At the end of God's revelation, that's exactly what we find. And there, at that table, in the presence of Jesus, joy finds its culmination. Hope finds its object. Faith finds its sight. Pain finds its end. Sin finds its removal. Death finds its destruction. Praise finds its chorus. Love finds its fount. Grace finds its giver. And the bride finds her bridegroom as the nations sit around a table at the marriage feast of the Lamb. The climax of the book of Exodus is pointing us forward to the culmination of the great work of Jesus Christ. Pointing us forward to that greater table. And so why should we as a church care about global missions? Why should we have gospel partners supporting missionaries around the world? Why would we pray to see people raised up from this church and sent out to unreached people groups who have never even heard the name of Jesus? Why should we care about global missions? Why should we care about who's sitting at that table at the marriage feast of the Lamb? Friends, we should care because I hope we've seen God cares. It is and always has been his mission.
from the very beginning to gather the nations to himself through the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so we want to work and be a part of that mission to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation call on and believe in the name of the Lord because we believe that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they believe if they haven't heard? And friends, how can they hear if no one goes and tells them? And how can you go and tell them unless you've been sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so friends, we wanna be a church that's engaged in this mission because God's going to build his church and he's going to populate that throne. The question is, will we be part of it? Or we get caught up in our own lives, our own missions? Or will we align ourselves with the mission of God to come alongside and be a part of an eternal story? To be a part of a story that doesn't end? To be handing out invitations to a dinner that's coming in the future? that we will be a part either of sending or going, but we'll be a part of it. And praying that this church would be filled with beautiful feet and longing hearts that want to see ourselves be a part of God's global mission. Would you pray with me? God, we, we thank you that your heart is for the nations because we are the nations. Lord, we are here today because you came and got us. And so, Lord, would you then help us continue to pass on what you've done in our hearts, that we would continue to go to people that haven't heard you, the people that don't know you, or the people that haven't heard the good things that you have done for them. Lord, we share that. Would we tell that? Would we feel the burden for those who are lost, to those who are heading to an eternity in hell and separation from you, unless they hear of and believe in a Savior that loves them and died in their place and takes their punishment and their sin and gives them instead his life and his righteousness. Lord, burden us. Give us a vision for missions. Give us a heart for missions. Help us be a part of what you are doing. Lord, help us never forget the heart that you have, the heart that you have for the nations. And Lord, would you give us a heart to see that table filled filled with every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.